Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Okay, I am happy to welcome Justin Michael Williams back to the podcast today. Justin is an author, a top-charting recording artist, and a meditation teacher. And there are myriad reasons I would ask Justin for another interview, but the specific motive for this conversation emerges from an important article that Justin wrote recently called Ending Racism, How to Change the World in One Generation. So without further ado... Here's my conversation with Justin. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Hey, Justin Michael Williams, welcome back to the Commune podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, brother. I'm really excited to be back here with you. Likewise, and we are speaking today specifically um, because you have just written an article that is getting widely circulated on the interwebs um, entitled Ending Racism, How to Change the World in One Generation. And uh, uh, now I've seen this article um, which posits a unique optimistic and hopeful vision for eradicating racism in our time. Um, and it is, I would say, anachronistic to the general tenor of the debate or the discussion happening in our country yeah. uh, at large. And I'll just, you know, as a means to kind of set up our discussion and get into your article, um, I'll just place it in a bit of context, which is one of the reasons why I find it particularly unique. Um, obviously, we've had a summer uh, of reckoning on social justice and race issues like we haven't seen in multiple generations, um, I suppose, starting with the murder of George Floyd on, on May 25th. And here we are on August 31st, just a week and a day after um, Jacob Blake um, was shot in the back seven times. Um, and kind of between those goalposts, um, as a country, we've seen protests that have involved the estimates I've seen, 30 million people, wow. um, which makes them the biggest protests uh, ever um, that I have right. been able to um, actually find or discover. And the nature of those protests have 
um, I think indicated a lot about where we are uh, in America. Certainly, the movement for Black Lives has generated more mainstream support than than ever. Um, and there is, you know, data that I have pulled, which I may share later in the in the in our discussion around both the support and honestly the growing opposition um, to the movement. And you know, we've seen protests largely peaceful, um, but not always um, in 300 plus cities across the United States. We've seen the deployment of federal agents to cities like Portland. Um, we've seen some municipalities and cities make some efforts to address police violence with defund the police measures, but honestly, a number of them have stalled or been walked back. And this is all set against the backdrop of an election year and a global pandemic, um, in which culture <laughs> and identity politics is uh, taking center stage. So amidst all of that, somehow you found it in your soul, in your mind, in your heart, <laughs> to write an extraordinary article about ending racism in our time. Um, so explain how you did that, <laughs> how yeah. you found that. Well, you, you know, Jeff, like when you just hearing you with that, you know, few minute recap, I'm like sitting here actually with my head down and just <laughs> anchoring into it and my eyes closed and like, wow shit you know like this has been a big few months you know yeah. and um it's going to continue to be a big few months and the truth is for me what happened is i had a moment of a complete energetic meltdown like with all of it like i was sitting in the apartment that I was staying in during COVID that was temporary for me because my book tour got canceled and all the mess of, of COVID. And I was sitting in this apartment and I had this moment where it was just after George Floyd had been murdered. And I was so upset. I mean, I was so upset. And as a black man, just being completely traumatized, I was watching the video and then Almost immediately after it happened and the news broke about all of it, being asked to say something about it and give a statement. Mm -hmm. And I remember this moment feeling like, what the, like, ah, like, what am I going to say? Like, I'm so worked up, you know, there's this part of me that's like, burn the whole system down. And there's a part of me that's like, no peace. And there's a part of me that's, there was all these disparate parts that were just at war within myself. And I remember I ended up doing a podcast episode with, I was in West Hollywood, right near all the protests that were happening here in LA. And feel, and there are actually helicopters circling. You can hear them in the back of the podcast episode that I did, um, trying to, to figure out what to say. And then after that happened, and, and I, I was able to come through and, and let my voice come through in a strong way, I just kept feeling this sense that if I was going to really say something, I wanted to say something that wasn't just in response to what the media was showing me as truth. 
Hmm. Right. And, and this was something that we all know. I think everybody listening, like obviously there's a lot of propaganda hidden and subconscious, whatever, you know, behind the media and what we're being shown. And a part of what I really believe, Jeff, is that obviously the news and what we're seeing online gives a lot of attention to the extreme polarized sides of the equation. Hmm. And what I really believe is that most people are actually kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like most people, when they're not being forced to pick between extremes, when that's not the, the two options being presented as the only options, most people, including Black family members that I have and friends that I have, when they're pulled out of that context of here are your two options, the most polar opposites, and we find ourselves somewhere in some ways in the middle. And obviously it's a spectrum and, and we find ourselves in different places. And so what I decided to do, and I had the, the complete privilege of doing, is I actually was in Big Sur at, at Esalen and I gave myself permission to completely shut off the news, the media for three weeks. And at first I felt completely irresponsible doing it. I had to do some like reckoning within myself. I was like, how me as somebody who has a voice in this time, da, 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 so important to be disconnecting. And I said, no, 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 I'm disconnecting from the media, but I'm not disconnecting from what's happening in the world. You know, I'm not disconnecting energetically or even in conversation from what's happening, but I'm disconnecting from this constant barrage of stuff being thrown at me. And I did that with one intention to say, if I am truly using this time to disconnect with the purpose of seeing what arises, what naturally arises within me that isn't a response to what social media or the media is showing me, what would that be? And I didn't have an intention. I didn't think I'm going to write an article on ending racism. I didn't think, I didn't know what it was going to be. I just was present with what will arise. And this was what, this is what arose very slowly, piece by piece with thousands and thousands of words that are unused and, and didn't make it into the article and lots of thoughts and deliberation on my part. Um, and I came out with this message of hope. You know, I came out with this message of hope um, because I think one of the things that is happening right now is as we are being just traumatized over and over and over and over, we're losing our ability to see a future that is bigger than our circumstances. And if we can't see a future where our possibilities are bigger than our circumstances, we are in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose our reality uh, or our human experience right now, as you say, is dominated by um, our experience on social media um, and also what we're receiving from the news. And those experiences I would categorize as hyperbolized and, and generally quite vitriolic and negative. Totally. And um, from, you know, the news side, because uh, I suppose cynically, you know, that's what gets clicks and, and views. Um, and from the social media side, uh, because it just is not a forum that accommodates conversation or nuance. No. And, 
if there is ever a topic that requires that, it's this one. Um, and so this is why I love to podcast, honestly, because I believe that you can actually have conversations that uh, transcend the meme or the quote card yeah. or, or the performative um, and and get into the heart of matter. And, and that's why I also um, resonate with your article because it's long <laughs> and um and i don't mean to to scare people off it's not it's not that too long, long but to read yeah. 20, <laughs> but 20 it, 30 minute read yeah yeah, yeah but it, and it requires some thought um and you you can't you can't come into it um without being ready to think and to take an inventory um yeah. So that's and I want to say I, I want to say Jeff too like that that was really intentional because so when we were so I didn't have a, like a length in mind that I wanted it to be I knew I didn't want it to be a book you know but just you know it's a it's a four thousand word article some people read it in fifteen minutes some read it in thirty minutes depending on how fast or slow you might read and when we were considering publishing it. Um, you know, I had talked to a few major, major publications about putting it out and they all loved it, but they said, each of them said the same thing. Um, they said, this is amazing. And the only way for us to publish this is if you cut it short. And I think you cutting this short would be the worst possible thing you could do for this article. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that, you know, that I was getting a decline from these major media things that I, I don't think I'm allowed to name. And, but saying we support you and this is important and it's important that it's this long. We just don't have the format for it. And it is because right now, a lot of the conversation around race and racism and police violence in this is reduced to headlines and memes. And you're right. It's not enough. And it, it almost polarizes us more sometimes because you see one meme and you're like, yeah, I agree with that. But it's like, you know, and then you're so on this side of the fence and then you're like, see another one. Oh, yeah, well, that must be right, too. Oh, well, now I agree with that. And, and it, it just kind of, again, like you said, doesn't allow for the nuance that the conversation really requires. No, and it creates a binary structure for looking at the issue, whether it, it, it and it forces in some ways people to take sides like I'm for BLM or I'm against BLM or whatever, right. wherever you end up landing. Um, and uh, um, it shows, and you know what, yeah. sorry, I was just going to say, like, before we get too far off of this is a good example of this was I remember when the hashtag defund the police first happened, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. my audience is very diverse. Like I have, you know, spiritual white women mixed with like young Gen Z activists and all over the world. And I remember a lot of people saying, what do you think about this? And I remember thinking, ah, oh, this hashtag, like I wish this wasn't the hashtag. And this shows the danger of everything being reduced to a hashtag because I had done this short video. It was a minute and a half long, not long by any stretch of the imagination on Instagram saying, hey, everybody, I just want to explain defund the police because I actually think if more of you know what this means, then I think more of you will be more in favor of it than not. But the hashtag isn't doing it justice. It's about reallocating resources, which happens all the time. And here's science that proves, you know, in studies of, of what makes things safer. And so I'm not telling people to support or not defund the police, but I'm just proving a point that the hashtags themselves can sometimes even cause a bigger problem than the issue that we're actually talking about.
I completely agree. And I had the exact same reaction to that particular hashtag. In fact, in some of my more cynical moments, I attributed it to a Republican think tank. <laughs> um, <laughs> just because if you know, there's anything that you want to use to, um, you know, to freak people out who put a lot of stake in law and order, it's the notion that there will be no more police department. But of course, that's not at not all about. Yeah. what that what that policy actually stands for. But, you know, this is the game in some ways we're all forced to play. And, um, and I think, you know, being able to kind of think through how we present ourselves, um, you know, even in its, you know, soundbite incarnations is you know something to to consider yeah but let's get into the article um because that's that's the meat here um and i will just set it up the way you set it up in your piece which is so often um works and articles on racism are built around the assumption that it cannot end. Um, so that's where you start. Yeah. So take us from that that springboard. Great. And I want to take you because I've I've actually never had. The, so this is my first interview about the article, Jeff, which is fantastic. <laughs> and so I've never had the opportunity to actually talk about this moment more in in, in detail, and I'll and I'll then spring us from there. But the moment that this happened was when I was at Esalen. And like I said, I didn't disconnect. I was reading every book on anti-racism. I was doing all the work without the without having the media involved. And I was reading the books and I was reading the articles and I was listening to podcasts. And, and I had this moment where I was actually sitting in, in one of the tubs there. And I said, gosh, why is every single book and article and everything that I read use these words that this is going to be a lifelong fight, that in order for this to ever get better, we're going to all have to be in this thing for the rest of our lives. And like, but that had been being said since way before I was alive, you know? And so I'm just like, why? And it really gave me this question of if so many things, we've created so many major shifts and changes in the world. And if everyone's saying that racism is something that will probably never end or ending it is something that will probably never happen in our generation, I just started asking the question, why not? And that's what started give, giving birth to this article. And I didn't know where it was going to take me. I was just like, okay, well, why not? Like, why can't racism end? And how amazing would it be for all these leaders and activists and people who are brilliant that have to dedicate their lives fighting for this cause? Like, what would these people's mental and, uh, you know, resources go towards that would help us build a better world or a big, you know, a future that's better for all of us if racism were to end? And that's where I started to get curious because I started to research after that. And I was like, I, there has to be something out there about somebody talking about it ending, right? And I couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's explore. And I, and just in my, you know, experience as someone who works in the field of human potential and at intersecting social justice, what I know for sure is that unless we, unless and until we commit to have it end, there is no possibility of it ending. There, we may improve, 
But like I'm, what I was thinking is, God, well, yeah. let's play a bigger game here. Right. You know, let's, let's put a man a on the game. moon at by the end of the by the end of the decade. Exactly. You know, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Because what happens when you do that is you change the context, right? right? You change the context of which the situations are existing in. Yeah, and that's a you know the idea of the Apollo mission is is not a completely fair analogy, but what I do think it accomplished was it got people to see an idea as bigger than their own particular individual plight. It got them to invest in an idea that was really big and grandiose and transcendent. Um, And I resonated with that piece in that part of the article um, that puts that flag in the ground and, and, and clearly imagines a future that I would agree with you. I think that almost all, everyone wants. Yeah. Uh, not everyone agrees on how to get there, um, but I would say that just because you know, I generally believe in the intrinsic good nature of people, that the overwhelming majority of the people share a vision of equity. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and and that's the thing about you saying about how to get there because what I set up straight in the beginning of the article and one of my favorite lines in the article, and it was one of the last lines to come through me, actually, it was right at the end, a few days before it came out, was, you know, we are the vessel for the dreams that our ancestors were unable to dream. And I say that because the work and research that has happened in the past is incredible. And we would not even be at a point to be able to consider, could we end it, you know, without the work that has happened before us? And that's why it was so special for me to release it on the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington, you know, where Martin Luther King said, you know, I have a dream. And I said, well, we still have a dream, but our dream is expanding because of them. And now it's time for us to dream a bigger dream, a new dream that involves all of us coming together to end this. Um, And the one thing that I like to be very careful of as I'm talking about this is I'm not saying that the anti-racist work or the different work that's been done in the past isn't important. But what I'm saying is imagine how much more important all the work that we're all doing now, all the donating, all the activism, all the dismantling, all the books, all the podcasts, imagine how much more important that all becomes if we weren't doing it as some sort of boot camp to be in a lifelong fight for these individual specific problems, but if we had a common united goal of doing those very same things with the intention of ending racism in this generation, not just fighting against these particular problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a important reframing um, that in some ways is, is psychological for people. Yeah. Um, and as you say, it's not um, a kind of woo-woo law of attraction um, no. kind of thing, although I'm certainly willing to go there with you on a different episode of the totally. podcast. <laughs> um, but it is about really um, changing the perception of what people think is possible. Yeah. Um, so one of the um, kind of key components that you discuss within the article are a set of 
shared and individual uh, shared but individual assumptions that you spend a good um, amount of um, words taking on and debunking um, in a lot of ways. So maybe maybe this is a good time to talk about those. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, and I think um, as I get into those, it's important to kind of name what I mean by shared and individual assumptions because yeah. what that basically means is that we have to own and acknowledge that we as people at first as and everything that I'm looking at at this article is at the individual level and the collective level not as two separate individual things only but as a thing that also intersects uh, because we're all affecting one another and the collective is affecting us and what we have to know is that we all see things through a certain lens or a perspective and if enough of us agree upon that perspective, even if it's false, then that perspective is what becomes our reality. For example, thinking black people should be slaves or women are inferior, then that becomes the context that causes a certain way of life to persist, a certain way of life to keep going. And so that's why for me, I was interested in breaking down these shared perspectives because once you're in a problem for long enough, I think it's important to shift the question that we're asking. Instead of asking, you know, what is the problem or what's causing the problem? I think we ask what's causing the problem to persist. And that's a different question completely. And for me, this came down to these assumptions. So do you want me to just jump into the first one? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. So uh, the article really aims to dis dismantle these five faulty perspectives. And the first one is that racism is unavoidable. Okay. And the thing that's really interesting about this is we know this is not true. It's been proven by neuroscientists and psychologists all over that racism is learned. It's not like an automatic human condition. And the thing that we have to say that's really important here that I didn't get to say in the article, again, because of trying to keep the word count a little lower, is because we've, even though we know that scientifically, I think most of us still believe, again, our perception, that racism is something that is a human condition. And when we say something is a human condition, it becomes this excuse or like a justification of, well, we can't do anything about it. You know, we can't do anything about it because this is inherited. We didn't choose it. And that's why it's a condition because you just wake up and you're in a racist world, you know, and that's just the way it is. And what that causes is a complete diminishing of the human spirit, a complete for everyone, you know, because basically we're saying this thing that we all know, I think most sides know, except for the ex dramatic extreme, I would say most people know and agree that racism and the effects of racism are profoundly immoral and evil. And somehow we've resigned ourselves to that. And I think resignation is ultimately the absence of possibility. And that's what this piece really intends to do is to create possibility in this space. And if we are saying it's just a human condition, it's just what happens, then we're immediately resigning ourselves. And one of the things I say in the article is, you know, we can look at this in some other ways is, you know, whenever we say something is unavoidable, we immediately absolve ourselves from taking responsibility and we throw our hands up in the air and we just say, well, I can't do anything about that. And that would be the equivalent of saying, 
well, I can't do anything about slavery. We can't do anything about gay marriage. We can't do anything about the spread of HIV. Can't do anything about women's rights. You know, can't do anything about racism. And I end that that section by saying, until somebody does. You know, and it really, the somebody is we. Until somebody does, then the context and the, the space of possibility changes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, as, as humanity, tend to often succumb to notions of structuralism that posit that the world shapes the self. Right. And that here we are as a product of, you know, our parents, the media, um, video games, you know, whatever, uh, hundreds of inputs that, um, that create all of these patterns that are implicit um, and bias being one of them. And if we can move from a structuralist uh, vision of the world, where the world shapes the self, to a more, um, I would say, humanistic vision of the world where the self actually shapes the world, then I, I think a lot of these problems become much more solvable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's both. I, I think it's both. Yeah. Uh, that's And that's why I said, you know, in the beginning, everything is approached from, I think one of the biggest mistakes, not the biggest, but a big mistake that we've made is in the human potential movement, for example, there's been this overemphasis in the individualized self, right? And the expansion of the individualized self and the quote unquote transcendence of the individualized <laughs> self. And when we think of when the human potential movement even started in the West, which is, you know, gives a great example of this was during the civil rights era by a lot of really privileged people who were able to escape to spiritual retreat centers and say, I don't need to focus on anyone else. I just need to focus on me and everything's fine. And, and then on the flip side of that, we see the collective, we see the social justice movement that's completely mostly focused on just the collective and has this faulty part that just refuses to take the learning within. It's a lot of pointing fingers. And, and I think what's happening right now is we're noticing that in order for any of this to change, we have to recognize the truth and get out of this delusion of separation that it's all affecting one another in this cyclical way. And so we have to be tackling both at the same time. Going into the second point, which is about race mattering. So this was a big one for me to write. And I went back and forth on changing this title several times because yeah. um, I was like, wow, especially with a movement like Black Lives Matter, like, am I going to really say that we have a false shared perspective that race matters? Like, can you find softer words, Justin? Like maybe, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and it just kept coming back. I changed it like four times and it just kept coming back. And I think I was being sensitive to specifically my fellow people of color um, because it's hard to face and say that race really is a complete fabrication of the human mind that is used for power and control and to maintain power and control. It's a complete social construct. It's, you know, a delusion, an alternative fact, you know, and we have as a society built our entire civilization on something that is not real. And I think what's important for me to name here 
is I'm not saying that the effects of racism aren't real. Obviously, the trauma and the deaths and the lives lost and you know the impact of racism has had very real consequences. But what I really believe is that most of us, and I find this with most people that I talk to, if we really break down race as an individual concept, I don't think most people really actually care that much about race itself. It's like we were taught to care about it, and so we do. What I find people care about is obviously our heritage and our cultures and our traditions and equality and even just being honored for our different skin colors and knowing that we all have different experiences. But the concept of race as an individual concept does nothing but cause us harm. And one of the lines that I say in the article that I think has been quoted the most is that racism created race, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly, I have heard theories posited that um, that the core reason for slavery or what stood behind it was honestly capitalism. Right. And that racism then became sort of an excuse later on for its for the legitimizing it, its existence. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> and, you know, I heard um, an interview with a guy named Thomas Chatterton, Ch Chatterton Williams, um, oh, maybe la <clears throat> last week. And, you know, he was addressing some of this very, this very same issue. Um, and, you know, he talks a lot about like, well, where does, my race start and end mm -hmm. you know he's like i did 23 and me or whatever and <laughs> it turns out that i have you know 28 percent. i don't remember the exact percentage you know but like pan-european blood and my kids have less than that but they have you know a quote-unquote black father and white mother and where does where does that put them in terms of their race well and as you say i mean that you know culture and identity and tradition is, and skin color is real but these notions of uh of race are very illusory yeah yeah and let's just think so we're so used to talking about race in a black context right but let's even sure. look at, at the the definition of white you know as yeah. being seen as a race like in the u.s historically it used to not even include italian or irish people Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, Jewish people and were treated as other by non-Jewish people for ages. And so we see that, like, where does it end and begin? It is totally something that shifts with our social constructs. It's a, it's a, a historical interpretation or a cultural interpretation that we're making on race. And, it, you know, it was interesting talking about um, Kamala, you know, Harris and mm -hmm. just how you know, she identifies as black and in the way that she does and the different people in the world who may have grown up, you know, Jamaican or this and that, but they're like, well, I'm black. And that's because race is something that we're defining as culture is moving along. And so it just seems to me that it's something that we were taught very specifically to hold on to and to care about. And we're, we've created all these realities based upon this thing that was really just created, like you said, as a means to enforce 
power and control and capitalism and to keep the money flowing in the way that it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number Here three. we are. Number three. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> so, so going into, this is, this is one of my favorite ones to write. So uh, the number three is called those people will never change. And we all say this, right? Like, oh, well, the own the, some things that I hear that I didn't put in the article, but saying, you know, the, well, we're just gonna have to wait for those people to die off, you know, until we can change it. Or <laughs> we're gonna hear people say stuff like that all the time. We're like, oh, those yeah. people over there. And it's coming from both sides. You know, people, if I'm just being binary about it, which probably isn't good, but just saying, you know, like black people saying, oh, well, those racist white people need to change. And then white people saying, well, those black people need to, you know, change. And the thing is, is, we say that people never change, but all throughout our lives, we can usually pretty easily point to and tell stories of people that have. And not just people like way out there, but people in our own lives and our own family line. So I'll tell you, the, the story in the, in the article is interesting, but I'll tell you a more personal one that I was debating on putting in the article or not. And I chose not to because I didn't want to make the article about me at all. And, but in my own family, you know, I'm half black, my dad's black, and my mom is Persian and Italian. And my mom is adopted actually into a, a fully Italian family. So imagine me, this little black kid growing up in a household with like all white blonde hair cousins with like Italian Catholic dinners on Sundays, you know, and because my parents were divorced. And the thing is, is when my mom got engaged to my father, my family, my mom's side of the family, completely disowned her. They kicked her out of the house at, you know, 20 years old or whatever it was. And she went to go live with my dad's family because my family was so racist to even believe that my mom, like how dare my mom marry a black man and want to be in a relationship with a black man. And they thought they could get her to get out of it. And what happened in our family is my, as like most older Italian families, like my grandparents, you know, came from Sicily on a boat and they had nine brothers and sisters. And what happened is after my mom and dad actually got married, which my grandparents didn't go to the wedding, the family had a big meeting and my grandparents felt so bad. And they said, we're going back. We, we don't want to do this. You know, it didn't work. We thought it was going to end it and we love her and we want to welcome her back. And the other half of the family said, if you go back, we're never speaking to you again. And what happened was my family literally split in half. I have four great aunts and uncles who I have never met ever because of the racism that existed within my own family. Now, where this goes to the point of people will never change is my grandparents who were super racist. My, what ended up happening is my mom and dad got divorced and my mom was a single mom and my grandparents raised us and they were the most loving caring, kind, compassionate, as so were my great aunts and uncles, people that I had have ever been around, the most positive forces that I've ever seen in my life and loved us inside out. And it changed their experience of race all the way. And so uh, when I talk about people changing, I'm not talking about it as some theory. I'm really speaking about it in my own family and in my own blood. And I think we can all point to situations like this. We can point to our once racist family members or friends or our formerly kind of, you know, tone deaf coworkers or our used to be homophobic relatives or 
even just the ways we've personally grown in this last year alone learning about race. You know, and so what I say is people change all the time and racists are not exempt from that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, I can draw on um, examples in my own family that um, relate to that kind of evolution and progression. Um, it also makes me think of something that I read in Ibram Kendi's book um, that, that struck me and I thought was interesting, um, where he emphasizes the use of racist as an adjective and not mm. as a noun. Mm-hmm. So that, and I think he uses the example though, I'll probably bastardize it a little bit by, by accident, but he uses the idea that, that race, that, that being a racist or being an anti-racist is not a permanent condition, that this is like a sticker that we're taking on and off throughout our whole life every day. And that this is a process, and hopefully through self-examination and self-reflection, that we get to that place where we're, mo- we're most often wearing the anti-racist sticker. Um, but that you can engage in behaviors that produce inequities, yeah. um, and that that will be you acting in a way that is racist, but that is not your permanent condition. And with further examination, you know, that you can actually engage in behavior and adopt policies that create or produce equity. And so that this is, um, that this is a changeable, immutable condition. Uh, um, so that, that is a, something that I found from his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, of course, um, that I think framed that idea um, in a way that I could, I could really under, understand it. And I think, you know, your, your example, too, um, about Greg in your, yeah. um, in your article, I think, you know, rings true for, you know, so many people because who doesn't know a Greg, right? Right, um, totally. And who, and who can't, actually, if we're honest with ourselves, recognize some form of Greg in ourself. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, it needs to be deeply exhumed or not. Um, so I, I think that this was, uh, I can see why you got your teeth into writing that, yeah. that section. Because, it was a really fun uh, section. Because everybody can relate to it, I think. Totally. And for people who are knowing, because I didn't talk about Greg, you'll read about Greg in the article, but it's, you know, a friend of mine who literally used to be a a racist white supremacist and who now, like uh, the short story is who now, when I met him, was asking me for resources to help teach his young five-year-old white son how to grow up, you know, not being racist and has done like tons of anti-racist work. So I think people will have fun reading that story. And you just brought something up um, that I think is important, Jeff, is that this article is not just for white people. And I think this is a really important thing to name. And because ending racism can't just be for a lot of the, the, the language that I'm hearing right now is like, black people didn't start racism. So white people are the ones who need to end it, you know, and right. I, this I, a white person problem, I yeah. completely yeah. disagree. I dis I and I firmly disagree with this. Because that goes along to say that 
like, again, that we're in these siloed worlds that could somehow, you know, not be affecting one another. And I, while I think it's important to name that we have different work to do, like the work that white people have to do to end racism is sometimes and often different than the black work black people or people of color or indigenous people need to do to end racism. We all have work to do because if we want to be living in this world together, we're going to have to be in this process together. And so I feel like regardless of who points the finger of blame or who started it even, we're now here living in this context and it's going to be up to all of us to redo it and or to undo it. And I felt that as I was reading um, several of the books, particularly Layla Saad's Me and White Supremacy, which I loved because I, I read it all the way through. And she says in the beginning, the book's for white people. And she talks so beautifully about how people can be good white people and, yeah. and not feel like they're racist and how those are the most important people to be doing this work. And I agree. But I was reading and I was noticing things within myself as a black man that matched these racist white supremacist ideals that were living inside of me underneath my skin color. You know, things like me walking down the street and seeing a group of black guys and me actually being more scared than if I saw a group of white guys, even though I'm black, you know? And how does that play out for all of us, regardless of what color skin suit we're wearing right now? Number four, and this was this was the scariest one for me to do. I did this one late, um, and I knew that I said if this point doesn't go, then and I wasn't trying to push it. I just wanted to research, and if it doesn't go, then I'm not going to be able to write this article. Like this was the essential point, and hmm. it's that real the the idea or the perspective, the false perspective that we have that real change takes a long time. And what I really said in the article is like, even if we agree that racism is unavoidable and that we don't really care about the concept of race individually or that people can change, that ending racism in our generation must still be unrealistic because it will take too long, right? And what was so beautiful about the uncovering of this is I did tons of research and there was many more things that I didn't include here where I looked at some of the most massive changes in recent human history and kind of gave each of them an obvious start and end date that represented kind of an unmistakable widespread shift. And I did this in the context, remembering my article is about ending racism in one generation, which I'll talk about why the timeline's important in a moment. And I wanted to see how long did it take to make some huge, massive, unmistakable shifts in the world. And we see that, for example, in 1973, we had the first phone call ever made on a handheld cellular phone. And on 1995, we had widespread global use of mobile phones. It's 22 years. We, I'll just give a few examples here. But in 2004, the first state in the United States legalized same-sex marriage. And in 2015, it was national legalization of same-sex marriage. It's 11 years. Um, 1903, Wright brothers take their first flight. 1920. We had a complete, widespread, global commercial airline, 17 years. And this was, a, this was a really interesting one for me to look at. When 1933, 
was when Hitler took his first ever position of leadership in any organization ever. And the formation and the first starting of the formation of the Nazi party in 1933. And by 1945, the Holocaust had ended. And that was 12 years from Hitler's first ever, ever doing something of being a leader until it being over was 12 years. And obviously we gave the example earlier of, you know, the first satellite launched into space was 1957. And then we had man land on the moon 12 years later. And so it posed me to ask this question of, does real change actually take a long time? And the answer for me was no. You know, in almost all of these cases, it took less than one generation, which is usually considered 20 to 25 years, to make a widespread change. And I have to give one really important disclaimer here. Like, does every change in human history fall into this timeline? Of course not. And were there, of course, tons of just years and years and years of unrewarded and unrecognized labor that came before those quote unquote start dates that I have? Of course there were. But my intention with this section is obviously not to minimize all the work that had come before us, but to really prove one point. It's that once the ground has been prepared for us, which I believe it is now, then real change can happen and it can happen fast. Fast. And so that's where I want to get people into the possibility of is that we can do this and we can do it fast. Yeah. And I might underscore this point with um, how quickly we've been able to change our behavior in the context of the pandemic. Totally. I mean, you know, environmentalists who have been pulling their hair out for generations and generations who say like, oh, well, we'll never stop flying. Yeah. Or we'll never stop commuting to an office building or whatever. You know, there's hundred examples. Um, and you can see that humans do have the ability to change their behavior very quickly, given within extraordinary, you know, circumstances. But I think, you know, your point is well taken as once the soil is cultivated, um, then, you know, you can, you can grow things. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, for me, like, you know, Obama, we had a two-term African-American president. Um, you know, the notion of Kamala Harris being on the ticket as a vice presidential candidate, I don't really think surprises very many people. Um, certainly, they're not, there are plenty of people that do not support her, as I have found out firsthand, because I wrote a very, very long article last week that yeah, I published. I <laughs> and uh, um, boy... Publishing that uh, uh, in a Facebook environment is um, tricky. <laughs> yeah, you can spend a, a lot of time in there defending it. Um, but you know, for I think the vast majority of Americans, you know that that soil had been cultivated, um, and 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 does not seem at all shocking or surprising. So, I think you know your point is well is well taken here, and you know I could see. Um, you know, some folks that uh, might point out that you published this on the 57th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech, and there's still people marching in the streets in Kenosha and Portland and all across America. So exactly. Um, so I think that, um, you know, this is uh, this is obviously a vision, a very, very hopeful vision for the future, which which I share. Yeah. Um, and you're absolutely right. It is built upon the toil and the suffering and the hard work of, 
you know, gener- generations of, of of folks that have, you know, dedicated their lives to it. Yeah. And, and you know, it brings me to an important point that I want to name here about why putting a timeline on it, because this where this was an interesting thing for me to wrestle with was, okay, like, why would I have to put a timeline on it? And it's because when we put a timeline on something, that's when we actually are committed to doing it and committed to it being a real possibility of something. You know, if it's just some, oh, maybe one day this can happen (laughs) or, you know, whatever, then it just stays that way. Right. And so, go ahead. Certainly, even in the most banal example of all time, um, you know, once this podcast hit my little scheduler app, it was happening. Right. (laughs) You know, so we, we need to put the end of racism right into Google Cal. Yeah. And, and, and it shows like this has happened when we looked, we gave the example of man on the moon, you know, like saying when Kennedy says it's going to happen in 10 years, you know, 10 years. And at that point, it just seemed impossible. And what happens, though, is like we talked about, it creates a completely different context. And at a certain point, when you change the context, even the things that you're doing that are happening to quote unquote fight against it or be against it actually help make the solution occur. But that only right. happens when you change the context, because now even the people who say, oh, well, you can never get a man on the moon because we don't have this kind of metal. Well, that then helps the people create the kind of metal that we need, you know, right. but only if we have the goal of getting the man on the moon. Otherwise, no one creates it. So, yeah. And who puts the flag in the ground there? I mean, what obviously you have, <laughs> yeah. but does it take, you know, uh, a potential president biden to uh to make this declaration um you know does it come from a more i suppose bottom-up perspective I mean, who puts the flag on the ground i think it's all of us i think it's all of us placing a flag in the ground and that that literally is the point of me writing this article and the point of creating the pledge that surrounds it to get people to realize that it is going because even if biden or Somebody says, we're going to end racism. If people don't believe we can end it, it's not going to end, you know? And so it it has to be each of us individually and absolutely to get somebody who has a massive, massive reach makes a dramatic impact because we have to hit kind of a certain amount of people who put their personal flag in the ground to then make it a huge collective, you know, flag throwing, waving, putting. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Okay, take us into number Number five. five, Final point. So the fifth point is very simple. And it's this perspective that we, quote unquote, don't know how to end racism. Mm. And this is a big one, because I think a lot of people say, well, if we knew how to end it, we already would have, right? And I think this assumption is probably the, the worst one of all. I, I don't want to say the worst, meaning the, the most harmful, but it's just like so silly. Because there are already plenty of not just good, but like really good solutions of and ideas for solutions and programs and theories and, and entire college campuses dedicated to this cause. And, you know, there's been models and systems and structures and now all the New York Times bestselling books that have been created that 
can solve this problem. And not just hypothetically, like when we look in a more micro way, if we look in our organizations or in our communities or in our families as a unit, uh, as individual units, we see that we have in some ways when we're in those bubbles solved the racism problem in those bubbles, or at least changed it dramatically. And, and so we can do this on a massive global level. And I think one of the things that I say here that I think is important is, you know, we aren't actually waiting for better solutions, just like we weren't waiting for better solutions to end slavery. It didn't take, oh, we need a better roadmap or model for how we're going to end it. And we didn't need better solutions to end the, end the Holocaust. As a society and as individuals and as a collective, what we needed was to actually be ready, to be ready, to be ready for our solutions to work, to be willing and ready for the solutions to actually work. And that has to do with that putting the flag in the ground. And my brother, Nico Carey, who's an incredible writer and and mindfulness teacher with Inside LA, um, he said this quote to me on the phone once uh, that was just so profound that I included it here. He just said, gosh, are we so bound to our pain that we're not ready for liberation? Are we not ready for that? And that really moved me because I think a lot of us are, like you talked about, tied to the identities and tied to it. I think a lot of us are tied to this notion of fighting against this problem instead of fighting for or moving toward the solution. And those are two very different things that accomplish very different goals. Um, and so I just felt like a really important thing to name here towards the end of the article. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to pose this question in the right way. Do you feel that most Black people are bound to that pain so much so that it impedes upon the ability to find this equity that we all envision? I think it's a mix. So I'll say bound and I'll define bound in two ways. Um, so first, I don't know if it's most Black people or not. I'll just say that. I don't have no idea. Sure. But I'll say that what I find from the people that I work with uh, is that some people are bound to it because, again, they think that things are part of a human condition and they have this perspective that things will never change. Mm-hmm. And then some people are bound to it because the system literally has them in bondage to it. You know, and this is where the racism on an internal level, on a systemic level, and on a level of, you know, personalized racism against individual people all applies here in this word bound. And what I do think, I'll say this, is the way that I find much of, I want to say this properly, the way that I experience a lot of the work that's happening right now without discrediting it or dishonoring it um, or saying that it's not useful is that a lot of it when we talk about ending racism people start arguing about how it's going to happen and what it should look like on the other side and how exactly what pathway it should go through and that would be like literally a caterpillar 
arguing over, you know, arguing with mother nature about, well, I'm not getting into this cocoon until you tell me exactly what color my wings are going to be and exactly what pattern the wings are going to have and how many days I'm going to be in the cocoon. And if it's pink, I'm not getting in, but if it's purple or orange, I'm down, you know, like, and it sounds, you're laughing because it sounds so ridiculous, but you recognize that that's what we're doing. Like, oh, well, what's going to happen to my right leg when I become a butterfly? You know, like, where is that, those cells, are those cells going to go? But we know what happens scientifically when, and I'm not reducing racism to a caterpillar butterfly, but I think it's a useful metaphor is, you know, when a caterpillar goes into the cocoon, they, all of the cells become what's literally called imaginal cells. That's what they're called in science. And so the cells have possibility and potential to become anything. And so where I'm coming from with this article is we have to, instead of looking from the caterpillar perspective, asking, how the hell are we ever going to fly? We have to stand in the perspective of racism ending and look back and say, what did we do now? What did we mm. do? If it ended, what did we do now? And that's the reason I put out this article. Because I said, if it's, if it's going to end, what happened now was somebody had to put something out that made people think that it ending was possible. That has to be the first step, you that's know? beautiful. So yeah. that's it. Hmm. I love that, Justin. That's beautiful. Um, Thank you. I'm marking that right now because <laughs> I know that's going to be a highlight. Um, <laughs> so assuming that, um, that people can discard a lot of these misunderstandings that are stand in the way of eradicating racism, the five that you've enumerated, um, then what do we do now? You know, what, and I think, you know, this is a question that, um, you know, that the logistical mind always goes to, like, you know, give me some actionable, mm -hmm. you know, steps. And I think, to be honest, I don't think that that's really the crux of what you've done here. I yeah. think the crux of what you've done is what you've already beautifully articulated is to set forth a vision for the eradication and, re and ending of racism, which, to be honest, I haven't really seen before. Um, and so I think that that is the main goal that you've been able to accomplish here. Yeah. Um, but for, I think, folks that then are like, okay, I'm down with that. <laughs> I share that vision, you know, help them to channel some of their energy. Yeah, great. So a few things. Um, number one is, like you said, Jeff, my goal of this article was not to provide better solutions or like the step-by-step -step plan. Now, here's how we're going to go into every part of the world and end racism. But it was to get people to open up into this possibility that it can end. That that, that that itself is possible. And um, I love this quote by one of my mentors, Jim Selman. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time, actually. He says, you know, there are lots of conversations about change, but that's different than conversations that actually change something. And what I did was I said, okay, if people are going to want steps, because I know I would want steps, what steps are appropriate given this article and what the information that I've shared thus far? And so I found this incredible study uh, done in 2018 by University of Pennsylvania and the University of London 
that discovered that it takes the support of about 25% of people to make a major social shift in the world. And these numbers have uh, varied throughout the years, but this is one of the most recent um, studies that has been done. And the thing is, is when I say that, okay, we need to get 25% of people to believe that racism can end. What comes up for a lot of people first is they say, well, aren't there already 25% of people who think racism can end? And the thing is, I don't think so. I don't think 25% of people have even thought about the concept of can racism end? Because I, I had never thought of it until that moment sitting in the bathtub, you know, in the hot springs when I was mm -hmm. reading. And I think what happens is more than 25% of people want it to end. I think more than 25% of people agree that it's wrong and think that the fight against racism matters. But I don't think 25% of people have actually thought this can end. And I, as an individual and my organization and my company can make an impact. I think we've thought, well, we can be more diverse or we can create more equity or we can do all these different things. And, and while those things are nice, they just become gestures within the, pro the persistent problem ultimately, you know? And so I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm saying do those things with a new intention, with the intention of ending racism. And so um, what I say is we can't just fight, you know, to end police brutality just for the sake of ending police brutality. We need to fight against police brutality for the sake of ending racism. You know, we can't just be fighting to dismantle white supremacy just for the sake of creating more diversity in our workplaces or, you know, creating more nice white people. We need to be dismantling it with the intention of ending racism. We cannot keep fighting for the liberation of people just to have people continue to be encaged again. We have to start saying, even though this is the version of work that I'm doing, I'm doing it for the sake of ending racism in this generation. And so you know, that is what led me to creating the main call to action in this article, which is the uh, pledge to end racism. And the goal is to get 25% of the population to sign it. And for me, that marker, like that gives us a marker to say, okay, we have a number of people that we need to hit. It's a lot of freaking people, but so what, you know, why not? And let's spread this into the corners of the world that we can reach. And so the main call to action right now is, is here's the truth. If enough people don't believe it can end, even if you believe it can end, it won't end. We need enough people to believe. And so that's like, for me, that's the big step here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, part of what I wrote last week or in the, in the Kamala Harris sort of bridge to the future of America article um, was very much focused on sort of the evolving demographics of the United States. And, you know, through the research that, that I've been doing, it's pretty clear that in the, in right around 2042 or so that white people will cease to be a majority in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and that's largely due to influx of, um, Latin American immigrants and Asian immigrants, and also um, the great propensity for those two particular immigrant groups to um, to marry interracially, and you know the the future pastiche um, um, of the United States is inexorably 
multiracial. And that's just a fact. <laughs> so that that's just going to happen. And I think when it when it does, I mean, I think, you know, we're experiencing, you know, right now in this moment, the idea that that, that inevitability is very threatening to some people. Totally. Um, I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, notions of ending racism for people that have honestly accrued benefit from it is very, very scary. Um, and especially if, if those people themselves feel like they've been quote unquote left behind. So, um, so, you know, I am, you know, on the pendulum between optimistic and hopeful and then also scared and, um, not necessarily pessimistic, but have my guard up, which is, you know, while I have great hopefulness in, um, in a more multiracial and honestly kind of secular humanist uh, society, um, there is also sort of the dystopic opposite possibility, which is, you know, as, you know, as the white population begins to decline in the United States and, you know, we're vying, you know, for resources and there's climate catastrophe and all that kind of stuff, there could be a very dystopic um you know, side to that. And I think, you know, you're seeing some of that right now in the, in the vitriol of, uh, of some of America, um, which is, you know, we all bunker even further into our quote unquote in groups um, and, and vie for um, ever diminishing resources. Yes. Um, so this is the great um, wedge or, yeah. uh, or ca- chasm right now that, that we need to cross. And I, I, I think that's just goes to underscore even how important I think your decree is because my, my hope is that, um, is that the, is that through this evolving demography in the United States, it expands sort of the marketplace of ideas to include a whole variety of cultures and races and traditions for more input. And just from a pure perspective, evolutionary perspective, better ethics and moralities and philosophies and, and stronger social cohesion should emerge yeah. from that um, versus the constant pressure of having minority groups assimilate into a dominant white culture um so yeah i mean and this is this is huge and i think one of the things that you're saying is something that i've been working on so like for greater context for people listening who haven't heard me speak before is you know all of my work really intersects the human potential movement personal growth mindfulness and social justice and i weave in a little music too but the reason why i say that here is because this isn't the only step, obviously, we need to take uh, that I'm talking about in this article. There's many steps. And one of the things that you brought up is, and I'm sure for the white people even listening, can feel this fear of that happening because the world changes a lot when there's no longer a white majority, right? And that might be why we're seeing everything we're seeing today. And this, the reason I'm 
commenting on this, Jeff, is because if we don't, hmm, I'll say this this way, because our country has not dealt with the unworked trauma, unworked through trauma of slavery, of course the enslavers should be terrified of the people they kidnapped. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> of course, like it's a, this fear has driven this in-group, out-group distinction that has literally been 400 plus years in the making, you know? Yeah. And so like there is a deep reckoning that has to happen. And, and whether people like Marianne Williamson for her politics and what she's talking about online and or not, it doesn't matter in this context. But I think one of the things that I appreciate about the, the narrative that she's pushed forward so clearly is it's going to take some internal work and some atonement and some real truth telling and reckoning that everyone in our country is going to have to do for us to see this big change. And, and that's really where all of my work is. My work is about the internal work that we have to do to make the external world show up differently. And so, of course, people are afraid of that, you know, and uh, understandably. And we that's why we have to start doing the work now, <laughs> you know, otherwise yeah. 2042 is yeah. going to be scary. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, I'll finish with with this question, and it's a very difficult question. Um, okay. And I'm ready. And it's difficult because I've been grappling with it and I'm not sure I have an answer. Um, though, you know, I'm reading all sorts of political theory to kind of inform it is what does the end of racism look like? Um, and is, is the end of racism equivalent to equity insofar as, you know, everyone has the same benefits from society? Or is it, because, you know, I think about society's ability to probably coexist with a, quite a bit of inequity. Um, yeah. Like, not everyone wants to be Jeff Bezos. No. Um, and and you know some people want to do social work and some people want to go write a book in the woods and you know there's a million yeah, putting my hand that, up that there people <laughs> yeah <laughs> me too um there would there's a million different decisions or desires that people have that if given the freedom of opportunity to select that particular path in life um, would create inequities from a pure financial perspective. So I, I guess, you know, this is what I'm really trying to envision is like, what is this future that our hearts know is possible? Um, what, how does that instantiate? What does that actually look like? And, and I don't have a really good answer for it um, other than just to say that the equity should be in the access to the opportunity yep, to it. make that decision about your life. But that's, that's, that's it. as I mean, far me, as I've it. got. I mean, for me, yeah. that's actually it. it. And and I think the important thing to name, Jeff, and is that if you're looking at all of it through the context of money, right, and who has more and who has less, then it's going to appear that there's always a problem if that's a problem. And I'm not right. saying that, I, I want to be very clear that I'm not saying that the inequity that's happening in 
the financial and economically is not an issue. It's a major issue. But when I'm looking at the end of racism, I'm not defining it by does everybody have a similar amount of money at all, you know, I, but I think my, my hope, I can tell you what, what my dream is. And I'll also just say that Hmm. part of, I think the issue and the reason why people can't get behind ending it has to do with this very question. We're spending so much time wondering what it's going to look like when it happens. We don't know. (laughs) We couldn't know. That was exactly what I, you know, meant with the caterpillar butterfly thing. We don't know. Like, okay, what's going to happen if there's no more racism? What's going to happen to the NAACP? What's going to happen to all the people who with social justice degrees? Just like for somebody saying if cancer ended, what happens to all the people who've gotten their degrees and all the oncology centers and all the doctors? Like, I think part of the reason why some things don't end, I'm not saying, anyway, I'll just, you get what I'm saying, is because we get so caught up in the question of what exactly is it going to look like when it's over? And instead of just saying, let me do what I can now to work through ending it. And I think where we have to stand from is we have to stand in the possibility of it ending, remembering that possibilities don't exist in reality, right? But we, none of them do. But we have to stand in the possibility of it ending. And that's where I'm standing in the end of racism. I'm standing in this moment where it's ended. And then I ask the question, what else do I see? And I think it's more important to ask what happened backwards than it is to try to imagine what happens after. Because who the hell knows? (laughs) You know, there's going to be so many things. And the one thing that I do believe should exist in that space is what you said, is that we have the choice to actually choose with freedom to live in the fullness of the dignity and the humanity and the abundance and the options and the choices that is our birthright and that everyone has that opportunity. And of course, that's going to present itself some different problems, but hopefully those problems don't include racism, <laughs> you know? Like, and so that's yeah. that's where I'm at with it. I love it. Well, I look uh, forward to liquefying in the pupae yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> with you and, and surrendering to to a little bit of the uncertainty of what this is going to to look like, but certainly joining you um, in the vision and the fight that it will inevitably entail. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm very grateful for for your work, um, for this article, for your vision, and also just for your um, ability to really engage um, well with me. I'll say that, and and let me stumble clumsily, you know, through some of these issues. Um, as I educate myself and find my footing and, and find my vocabulary. And uh, I think, you know, you do that with a lot of grace. So yeah. we're all doing it. Grateful. I understand that we're all doing it. And, you know, I want to just say to people as we're closing is um, obviously signing the pledge is a step. And one thing that I'm super proud of is we launched in the timing for this article to come out an ending racism grant and scholarship fund, uh, which has been so cool to see people supporting that where, We're going to be funding vetted individuals and grassroots organizations who've taken the pledge because this is not about, this is about each of us doing the work that we're put here to do. And there are some people who are really dedicating their whole lives to this. 
And so we want to make sure that that impact can be spread far and wide. And, you know, one of the things that I really believe, Jeff, is that uh, with enough pebbles thrown into a pond, the, a ripple becomes a wave. And my hope is that each of us can change the world in the ways that only we can and in the corners of the world that only we can. And that together, when we all come together, we create the wave of change that this world is so desperately needing from us right now. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Justin Michael Williams. To learn more about his work and to read the article, you can go to justinmichaelwilliams.com. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for me, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I do my best to respond to every email. That's it from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.